about what it means to grow. Um, how do we grow spiritually? How do we grow um, just in our knowledge of Christ? How do we grow in so many of those different elements that we desire to grow, um, even as um, individuals, but collectively as a church as well? And so we're going to continue today to talk about that growth. And as you know, over the last few weeks, we have looked at what growth is. We have looked at how growing can be painful. We have looked at how growing can challenge us in areas that we don't want to be challenged. And today we're going to look at the complexity of what growth actually is and how that actually looks. Now, obviously, I think we know this, but you know, let me just state it. When we grow, we change, okay? We are changing people, but specifically as we are growing, we are changing, we are evolving. And, and I know that may sound obvious, but I don't think we always understand what growth actually entails in our lives. So once again today, we'll actually be looking in the life of Paul in view of this so that we can understand just how intricate growth can be even in our own lives and what it does and how it completely reshapes who we are as believers. Now, as you know, Dr. Seuss had a book called Oh, The Places Will Go, but today's sermon is titled Oh, The Places Will Grow, hoping that this will be a journey that we take together. So go with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to Philippians. We're going to be in the third chapter. We're going to start right at the seventh verse, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. And this again, this Paul writing, he says, but whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may, I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now that I have not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God revealed that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let's pray. Lord, first of all, we want to thank you. We thank you that as you have saved us, you did not leave us the way that we were. 
you have changed us. You are changing us. You are growing us. You are maturing us. And so, God, as we even wrestle what change looks like individually, God, help us accept that change is hard. But also help us understand the complexity of letting go of who we were and walking fully and comfortably in what you have called us to be and what we are becoming. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So change in life, which was formerly only a theological principle, has now widely in our world grown to be much of a social issue. In our world, people tend to say that good things happen because of change. But then sometimes they say, when there is no change, that's also good. But then some people say, well, bad things happen because there's been too much change. Or they say, bad things happen because nothing has changed at all. Every one of us could probably do a brief reflection and say that in general, from the time we were born until now, life has changed. Things are different, and many of us may have a different opinion on how we view that change or where we view ourselves in the midst of that change, but the reality is, is that things have changed. Not only have things changed, but things are changing. Now, Paul here attributed that change to the one thing that, that changed him, and that was him coming to faith in Christ. And this, in fact, is the ultimate change that all believers must experience. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, what kind of experience did he go or grow through that would ca cause him to say that everything else that made him who he was apart from Jesus, he now says that thing is lost in comparison to who Christ actually is in my life? Well, I can tell you, first of all, it was an exchange of values for the believer. And this is not an exchange that the unbeliever will ever be able to rationalize. And even we as Christians have to be careful how we communicate this change that has happened to us. Again, change is not something, y'all, that is supernatural in the sense that we can't attain it, we can't grasp it. It's something that's happened in the universe or in the cosmos. No, Change is real, and change for the believer, when we come to Christ, is an exchange of values. What we valued in life, in the world, apart from Christ, we no longer value now that we know him. That's the true change. And the manner by which we live is either the evidence of our true exchange of values or the evidence of a lack of exchange. Now, you can look many places and see that there is a movement by people who profess their faith towards this general shallowness. Most people in their walk with Christ, unfortunately, have no depth. They have no passion. They have no desire. They have no zeal. They have no growth. And therefore, 
no risk at all. And it doesn't make sense that if we actually understand this great exchange that we've made, why we wouldn't treat it as its actual value. Now, assuming every one of us in here has common sense, and I know we all do, none of us, no matter how dire the situation were in our lives, would risk our lives for $5. Not a single one of us in this room would do that. Now, it isn't that you think that $5 is worthless, but you know by comparison, your life versus $5, there is no comparison. But now, they say everybody has a price. So if I start adding some numbers to that five, maybe I added some zeros to that five. Maybe then the lines of value start to get a little bit blurred. I remember being a kid, and we always did this thing. It's like, would you do this for a million dollars? Would you jump off a cliff for a million dollars? Would you run into the ocean with sharks? And really what that was was a commentary on how valuable do you think your life is? if you know you can get a million dollars. But as Christians, we have to value ourselves and our lives in a way that cannot be the way the world does. See, when Paul says that he counts everything as a loss that he gained before Christ, that is not just a reflection on the value now found in his life, but it is a reflection of the insurmountable riches that he found in Christ. It was Christ's life for Paul. It was Christ's life for mine. It was Christ's life for yours. If we know that there was such a transaction made for our lives, truly not one of us would content be, be content resting on our laurels until we die. If you knew the price that was truly paid for your life as a believer, you would not just sit down and wait for death or wait for Jesus to come back. You would say, no, he has done something that I could never repay back, and that would be your motivation. If it's his life for mine, then he has all of my life. But you see, the problem is, is that many of us who are professing to be believers still are holding on to the worth that we think we have apart from Jesus. Now, Jesus explodes this line of thinking. On one hand, he says, you can't be like the man in the parable who, upon receiving his talent, buries it. Okay? You can't be like him. He thinks he's protecting it, and he thinks, well, you know, if I want to make sure that I protect this talent, then it's going to be honorable if I just bury it and nothing bad will happen to it. So he doesn't actually do anything. But then on the other hand, you can't be like the prodigal son who, upon understanding the true value of the inheritance, what does he do? He wastes it. He says, oh, this thing that you have for me is worth something. This inheritance has an enormous price. 
And he lives frivolously thinking, well, I've gotten my inheritance now. I can live any kind of way I want to live. No. We must look with reason at the value of our life prior to Christ and realize that if I say that I was purchased by the blood of Christ, then I don't want it to be a bad deal on his part. I want my life to now richly serve Christ and his purposes, no matter the cost. No matter the cost. Listen, we all know what happens with Sodom and Gomorrah, and we remember how God spared Lot, and he spared his family, and the instruction that they are given is that when you leave that place, there's only one thing I'm telling you not to do. Don't look back. Don't look back. Recognize that I've given you this great grace and mercy and acknowledge it by going forward, by not looking back. You have this new outlook on life. Don't look back. But you see, Lot's wife wasn't so sure that what was ahead of them was better than what was behind them. And so she's not sure that she was making a reasonable exchange. And what did she do? She looked back. She looked back. And if anyone here thinks that the God who preserved them is just ruthlessly punishing her for looking back, you're wrong. It's not just that she looked back. It was how she looked when she looked back. Y'all, the best way I can describe this is in that final famous episode of A Different World, when Whitley is fully prepared to marry some Joe Blow, and she's at the altar, and she's about to marry him, and Dwayne interrupts the wedding. And as they're dragging him out, what does she do? She looked back. And we all know there's a looking back that we do that tells us, I ain't ready to go forward with this. Now we get all sorts of warnings from Jesus about looking back. In Matthew 9, 57, as they were going along the road, it says, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, okay, but foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go on and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my house. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Y'all, why is Jesus so seemingly harsh about this? After all, one man just wanted to bury his dead father. Well, the problem is, is that his father wasn't actually dead. 
In other words, he said, my father is not yet dead, but I want to go back home and wait until he dies, get my inheritance. I want to make sure I'm financially secure. I want to make sure I'm stable. And then Jesus, I'll follow you. Jesus seems to be a little brash with him. He says, let the, bed there, the dead bury the dead. Why is he saying, if you look back, you aren't fit for the kingdom? Well, it's like this. If you know what the exchange is that has been made, then there is nothing that would make you want to look back or go back to the life you left behind. What change has salvation actually born in your life? I read this quote, this quote from R.C. Sproul recently, and it said this. It said, no martyr's blood is shed in the secular West. So as long as the church knows her place and remains quietly at peace on her modern reservation, let the babes pray and sing and read their Bibles, continuing steadfastly in their intellectual retardation. The church's extinction will not come by sword or by pillory, but by the quiet death of irrelevant Christians. The sad reality is that many of us have done our best to move forward in our walk with Christ while our hearts and minds remain in reverse. I was better back then. Things were better. You were better. I had more money. I had more freedom. I wasn't as stressed. I was happy. I could do what I want to do. I could come and go as I please. And for those of us who call ourselves Christians but live in yesterday, that is the biggest evidence of a lack of growth. This is why the Israel struggled so much in captivity. God, we didn't know that this journey would be this difficult. We didn't know that this journey would be this challenging. We didn't know that this journey would be this sanctifying. And then they utter those words that none of us should ever utter, though we have thought it. Things were better in captivity than they are being free. Unfortunately, there are many of us who may feel that things were better for us when we were sinners. God, I had no accountability. I had no worry. I had no stress. I had no pain. I had no suffering. Everything was better back then, except you were on your fast track to destruction. But this kind of thinking says, God, you were only good in my life when you weren't in my life. Y'all, how do we avoid growing cold in our relationship with Christ? How do we avoid feeling like things were better back then? Well, we must constantly stimulate our faith. We have to avoid that, that, that growing cold that the Bible warns us about. In 2 Timothy 1, 6, it says, For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying 
on of my hands. Paul's words here, y'all, are very important and significant to us. He encourages Timothy to stimulate the gift of God which was given to him. We, as well, must stimulate life and growth in ourselves. I saw a video this past, last week, prior to the fast, I saw a video on social media and this dog, this little puppy, was not breathing. And this guy who had bred a lot of animals knew exactly what to do. It looked like he had no life in him, but he picked him up And you know what he started to do to his chest? He started to stimulate it. And when he stimulated, the dog exhales and inhales. And he's breathing. And the life that seemed to have escaped him was returned to him. Y'all, there are definite times where we feel as if there is no life for this walk left in us. But we as well must do as that breeder did to that puppy. We must stimulate growth in ourselves. And I don't want you to feel bad. I don't want you to feel guilty. I don't want you to feel sorry for yourself. We all go through cold spells in our walk with Christ. We all go through those lulls where we do not feel like we want to draw closer to him, where we don't feel motivated. And that's just as applicable for me as it is for you. There are, quite frankly, days when I do not feel motivated to read scripture, when I do not feel motivated to listen to sermons, where I do not want to fellowship, when I don't want to do Bible study, when I don't want to come to church, when I don't want to be an accountable Christian. Quite frankly, there are times where I'm like, this would be so much easier if there were no God who had changed my life. So what should we do? When I feel like I'm not growing, when I feel like the love that I had is growing cold, what do we do? Before I tell you what to do, let me tell you what not to do. The worst thing that you can do when you feel like you're struggling is reminisce on the life you left behind. It's like the spouses who are having a fight. The worst thing you can do is think about the other people you dated that weren't your spouse. That is like pouring water on the flame. This is why Solomon warns us that we should not long for the former days. He says, the person who says that the days were better is a fool. We must excitedly cleave to Christ where we are trusting in his care for us. But do you trust that he'll care for you? If you do not believe that you made a reasonable exchange, then you will only cautiously walk through this journey But Paul in our text says, he says, I know that I made the right exchange. He says, everything else is rubbish. Now, that is not the greatest translation of that word. 
Because rubbish is like something they say in England. The better translation of that word in English, American English, is poop. That's what it actually means in the Greek. He says, I consider everything that I gained apart from Christ fecal matter. Poop. He knew that what Christ had done for him was infinitely more valuable than the life that he had prior to Christ. And then he says this. He says, you took my infinitely worthless life. You inserted your infinitely valuable life. And knowing that I have now, I have not yet obtained perfection, but I release the things behind me. In other words, everything that I was apart from Christ is dead. I'm not looking back and longing for who I was. This was not a bad deal. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Y'all, Paul's words here should be like honey for us. He says, not only do I consider everything I was prior to Christ insignificant, but I'm also forgetting who I was and what I once loved. And that's what I think I want you to see more than anything. That's just how transcendent the love of Christ is for us. It makes you forget that you ever loved anything else at all. It makes you forget that you could ever have any affection for anything else at all the way you now have for him. The boundless love of Christ will guide your life. And there are not limits to what we can do in him and where we can grow through him. And he says, let those of us who are mature, let this be the way that we think. Y'all, in my experience, when I have conversations with older men who have been faithful to their wives through decades. One, they're always Christians. But the other thing is, is that they always think, I would never find a love like this. And they realize that trying to entertain themselves or love anything else the way they love their wife would just be stupid. Because they know what are the chances in this life that I will find a love like this. Y'all, that's the exact same way we have to think about Christ. Why would I do anything 
to compromise, to forsake, to neglect my walk with Christ, knowing I can look everywhere in this world and I will never find another person, John 15, 13, who would give his life up for me the way that Christ does. That should be our greatest motivation to grow in him. He's the best that we've got. And if we know that, then let us pursue him fervently with a passion the same way that he pursued us and saved us. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your infinitely valuable life. God, I realize that we are unable to grow if we can't realize and see and acknowledge just how strong of a love that we have been able to receive in you. God, it is true that we all feel at moments cold. We all at moments may even feel lukewarm. We may feel unmotivated. But God, when we feel like that, let us not look at what was behind us, but let us look to you, the author and the finisher of our faith. God, let us pursue you with a fire and a fervence that renews us day by day. God, let us bear, quite frankly, in our hearts. Let us remember what you have done for us and the price that you have paid for us. And God, if we can view knowing that you made this exchange on our behalf, Oh, God, there are so many places that we will go and there are so many places that we will inevitably grow just in you. So help us see this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.